Today's episode is sponsored in part by 4 Athletics Apparel. All right, everybody, this is your last chance to take advantage of that 15% discount that 4 Athletics Apparel is offering exclusively to Truth and Justice listeners. The sale ends on August 7th. I've told you guys over and over again how much I love the apparel from 4 Athletics. My wife and I have both been wearing their apparel every time we work out and even just to lounge around the house for the last several weeks. Their clothing is extremely high quality, very comfortable, it's moisture wicking, it's durable, it's made in America, and it is a fraction of the cost of other high quality designer apparel lines. The guys at 4 Athletics keep their prices so low because they operate their business with a crowdfunding model. So remember, when you go to their site, 4athletics.com, and that's F-O-U-R athletics.com, you'll see that under every item there's a track bar. It'll tell you what percent funded that particular item is. Add your items to your cart, check out, and as soon as the item is funded, you'll have your clothing at your doorstep within two to four weeks. And this apparel is worth every penny. If you're looking for some extremely high-quality athletic apparel at a ridiculously low price, please support our sponsor, 4 Athletics. And if you go to their website, 4athletics.com, and use my promo code TRUTH, they're going to give you 15% off of your entire order all the way up until August 7th. And they'll even ship internationally. So don't wait. Right now, go check out 4athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH for 15% off. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to start today's show off by thanking all of you who have already gone to our new Patreon page and pledged a monthly donation to support our movement. For those of you that don't know, listeners have been asking me for over a year to create a Patreon page, a place where people who want to donate to help support what we're doing can do so on a regular, recurring monthly basis. Last week, I finally created the Patreon page, and I haven't even talked about it other than a quick share on social media, and we already have 50 patrons supporting the movement. But right now, I want to take this opportunity to officially announce the Truth and Justice Patreon page. What Patreon does is it gives listeners an opportunity to post a monthly pledge to donate to the work that we're doing here. Now, please, if this is something that you're not interested in doing, don't even worry about it. This is not something that's required. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. This is only for people that have been asking and want to have that opportunity to donate to continue what we're doing. I've said from the very beginning that this show is offered free of charge and will always be offered free of charge, and no one is obligated to donate or give anything to listen to the content. You listening and your engagement is help enough. But for those of you that do want to give, go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash truth and justice or you can go to our website truthandjusticepod.com and click the patreon link and you can make your pledge patreon allows listeners to pledge as little as one dollar a month or as high as you want to go and of the 50 patrons we have everybody in the range from a dollar a month all the way up to over a hundred dollars a month and every one of those pledges means the world to me and every one of them helps make a difference so if you're looking for the opportunity to make a small donation to help out with the cause, go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. Our sponsors cover all of the expenses so far. They cover my salary, 
all of the investigative work, all the expenses associated with the show, all the travel expenses associated with the show. But as I'm looking to the future of what we're going to do here, it's occurring to me that I'm going to have to expand at some point. As more people get involved and more people are sending in emails and want to help, for example, we had a lot of people, over 200 people have volunteered to help with the t-shirt project I mentioned last week. I'm realizing that I don't have time to read and respond to all of those emails and handle a lot of these business dealings and still keep up with all the research and investigation and travel that is necessary to keep the show going. As things move forward, I'm hoping to eventually be able to hire someone to handle all of the business side of the operation to free up more time for me to work on the cases. In the last couple of months, we went from working on one case to two to now three active cases, and I also have a stack of new cases that I'm starting to research. This movement is going strong, and we're quickly approaching the time where it's going to be necessary to add to the team. And this is part of what those Patreon pledges will go towards. So again, if this is something you're interested in and you want to pledge a donation to the show, go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. But for now, let's move on with the content of today's episode. There's something that I've been dying to tell you guys for almost a month now. A little over a month ago, I put a call out to all of the listeners to try to find an attorney for Kenny Snow. It didn't take long for the offers to start coming in. There was a lot of red tape to jump through. There were a lot of T's to be crossed and I's to be dotted. But today, I am happy and proud to announce that Kenny Snow officially has an attorney working on his case. Kenny's attorney's name is Susan Schoon, and she is one of our listeners and a proud member of the Truth and Justice Army. She has taken on Kenny's case pro bono and is currently in the research phase to figure out what possibilities we have to get Kenny's case back into court and get him out of that prison. Because of the phase of the case we're at right now, I can't get into the details of what's happening in Kenny's situation. But for right now, what I can tell you is that I'm proud as hell that we were able to come up with an attorney for Kenny. And for the first time in over a decade, he finally has hope in his case. I do want to update you all on how Kenny's doing. He's doing really well. Like I told you, he now has an attorney. But a thing that has been a huge effect on him is the fact that due to this movement, Kenny has reconnected with his children, his grandchildren. And at this very moment while I'm recording this, Kenny is seeing his sister for the first time in nearly two decades. Kimberly Raines made the trip all the way down from Ohio to go visit Kenny for the first time. Kenny asked me in a letter to give a personal thank you to all of you for helping to make this happen. You have been the driving force behind him finally reconnecting with his family and finally having hope in his case. Now for the rest of today's episode, I wanted to talk about two things. My plan was to continue working on and updating everyone on the Carrie Max Cook case, and then walk you through a more detailed analysis of the crime scene of the murder of Elnora Griffin. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to cover Carrie's case this week. I had the pleasure of traveling to Baltimore to address a group of lawyers, judges, and prosecutors with Robbie Ashaudry at an event on Wednesday. I was supposed to be home early Thursday afternoon, but if any of you have been watching the news, you saw that there was a big issue with Southwest Airlines this week. Well, due to that issue, I got stranded in Baltimore for an extra day. So as I was doing my show prep for this week's episode, all of my notes on Carrie's case were back in Michigan in my office. But before we move on to Ed's case, I do want to ask all of you to do something. You've all heard the new profile on the Linda Joe Edwards murder, and you heard the interview with Michael Valentin. What I'm asking for all of you to do 
is take a few minutes and start writing some letters. Send letters to the Tyler Morning Telegraph, Dallas Morning News, KLTV, Texas Monthly, and especially to the Smith County District Attorney's Office. I want to flood these people with letters and let them know that there are thousands of people that are watching this case and are asking them to investigate this confession story. Luella Mayfield needs to be investigated, and we can't let the Smith County District Attorney's Office drop this. It at least warrants an actual, thorough investigation. We need the local newspapers and TV stations to report on what's happening. The Smith County DA's office needs to be held accountable for what's happening. I'm a little under the gun time-wise because of the delay in my travel, but if not by this Sunday, by Monday I will have up on the website under the case documents page addresses as to where you can send these letters. Let's all bind together and show our support for Carrie Max Cook and hold the Smith County DA's office accountable for what's happening in this case. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear about our sponsors, and then we'll move on to the deeper analysis of the crime scene of the murder of Elnora Griffin. While I've been waiting for the Attorney General decision on Smith County's appeal to not produce all of the documents and photos that I've requested in my latest open records request, I started to take a deeper look at the crime scene. Several episodes back, I gave a full crime scene analysis. I've taken a deep, hard look at this crime scene and found a few things that I hadn't noticed before. I believe that the assault began in the bedroom, so that's where I want to focus our attention. If you want to follow along, remember that all of the crime scene photos are on the case documents page of the website. Just go to case documents and click the Edward H. case. Now you'll see the way the crime scene was found was that the mattress was pushed off of the box frame away from the entry door into the bedroom and the comforter was pulled off the bed back towards the door. That's really all you could see from the initial crime scene photos before the comforter is moved. By looking at these photos, it looks as though during the struggle someone stepped on the edge of the comforter and then either Elnora was shoved into the bed or both of them fell into the bed knocking the mattress away. But since someone's foot was on the comforter, the comforter stayed and the mattress went. All the other evidence that I'm about to describe was found underneath the comforter. And this includes all of the fecal material. You remember back two months ago that the fecal material is an indication that Elnora was choked. This will oftentimes cause someone to defecate. Now all of that material is underneath the comforter. That means that while she was being choked, she and the assailant were standing up next to the bed and the comforter was still on the bed. It was after she broke away from the assailant's grip that the struggle hit the bed, pulled the comforter off, and knocked the mattress away. Since this is how the bedroom was left, it's a strong indication that this last bit of struggle that pulled the comforter off and knocked the mattress away is when Elnora escaped the grasp of the killer. This is when she would have left and ran towards the front door where she pulled the curtain off. One thing that I noted was that the tie back for the curtain from the front door was found down towards the foot of the bed, not underneath the comforter. Now, this is about 15 feet away from the front door. The location where this tieback was found could mean a couple of things. It could mean that it was thrown there all the way from the front door, but given how small and light it is, I doubt that it could be thrown that far. Or what I think is the most likely scenario is that after the murder occurred, that the killer walked back through the bedroom to pull the towel out of the bathroom, that would be the master bathroom at the end of the bedroom, and dropped the tieback there when they grabbed the towel. The location of the tie back is off the foot of the bed 
right in front of the bathroom door. Just inside of the bathroom door, the towel rack is broken off the wall and the towel is missing that should have been on it. So I don't think this tieback has anything to do with the struggle. I think it was placed there during the concealment of the crime after the murder occurred. But the odd thing about this tieback is the tieback was found at this end of the trailer by the bathroom, whereas the actual curtain was found at the other end of the trailer all the way back in the laundry room where the hammer was found that was used to nail the towel up to the window. This is one of the reasons that I presented the hypothesis a couple months ago that there could have been two people in the trailer when Elnora was murdered. Many people have asked me if I still believe there were two people in the trailer, and the answer to that is I still think it's a possibility. It's possible that there was one person, and they had the curtain and tie back in their hands, and they just dropped the tie back when they grabbed the towel, didn't realize they dropped it or didn't care, and then walked to the back of the trailer to find the hammer and nails to tack up the towel. So that could go either way. You can find the picture of the tieback in State's Exhibit 25 on the website. The photo you'll see is taken from inside of the bathroom out towards the bedroom. And as we look at State's Exhibit 25, what we also see is Elnora's shoes. In her bedroom, there's a small vanity table with a seat with a bunch of clothes piled on top of it. And right next to that vanity table, we see her shoes. At first, I didn't pay much attention to these shoes. But as I'm taking a deeper look and trying to piece together exactly what happened, I decided it may be worthwhile to figure out what these shoes are telling us. First of all, the shoes are pointed away from the bed. It means Elnora's back was to the bed when she took her shoes off. One is upright and one is upside down. Now that doesn't tell us a whole lot. One could have gotten flipped over during the struggle. But more importantly, there's the fact that they're right next to each other, pointed away from the bed. What this indicates to me is that she probably got undressed when no one was there. Once we put everything together, it looks to me that at some point Elnora went into her bedroom, kicked her shoes off like a normal person would, took her clothes off and laid them across that bench, and then put her robe on. I think that before anyone came to the house, Elnora was wearing nothing but a bra, underpants, and a robe. Now this doesn't tell us a whole lot, it's actually something that I kind of already assumed, but it does play into the Kubia call. The call from Kubia was between 10 and 10.30 at night, and Elnora told her that she was sitting talking to Edward. What those shoes and clothes tell us is that if that was the case, it was likely that Elnora was already undressed before Edward would have come over, which means she would have had to have been comfortable sitting and talking to him wearing nothing but a bra, underwear, and a housecoat. A situation that by all accounts, from Johnny to Kubia to Ed's mother and Ed himself, is just not something that would have happened. Of course, it's still a possibility, but an unlikely one. So, so far, by looking at just a few photos, we have a little bit better idea of what happened before the murderer entered Elnora's apartment and what happened after the murder. But let's rewind into the moment of the actual struggle. Let's pull that comforter back and put the mattress back into position. Once we pull the comforter back, new evidence is revealed. In State's Exhibit 35, we see a photo with Elnora's house coat on the ground. You'll see fecal material in that photo. And some of the fecal material is on top of the house coat indicating that Elnora was already undressed when she was choked. But there's more to that photo. Elnora's bra is also in the photo on the right side. And what you'll notice about the bra is that it's on top of the housecoat. So we have an order of how and when she took her clothes off. And as we back up even further, we see Elnora's panties rolled up on the ground in State's Exhibit 23, right in front of her dresser. So by piecing these few things together, we can hypothesize about a reconstruction of how Elnora got undressed. 
It looks to me like she was standing near the dresser, facing the bed. She was wearing her housecoat, a bra, and underwear. She rolled her underwear off, stepped towards the bed. About two feet away, right next to the bed, we see the housecoat on the ground, and then her bra on top of the housecoat. Given their location, this would indicate to me that the person that she had this sexual encounter with was probably sitting on the bed. She takes her underwear off, steps towards the person on the bed, either she or they remove her housecoat, and then either she or they remove her bra. So now we have a person sitting on the edge of the bed, with Elnora standing in front of them completely nude. Now, I want to make a disclaimer here and kind of warn everybody, as this analysis moves forward, there's no way I can talk about these things without being graphic. The things that I'm about to talk about are of a graphic sexual nature, and there's just no way around it. So there's your fair warning. So for reconstructing this crime scene, remember we have a nude Elnora standing in front of the bed, and given the proximity to the bed where her clothing was removed, it appears that the person she was having the encounter with may very likely have been sitting on the edge of the bed. Now we move back to State's Exhibit 26. This is another photo taken from the bathroom where you can see the curtain tie back and Elnora's shoes. But on the right edge of the picture, we see a pillow on the floor. Now there's a couple of things to note about this pillow. The pillow is at the foot of the bed on the floor. The second pillow on the bed was found up near the head of the bed where it should be, pulled off the edge along with the comforter and the sheets during the struggle. But this pillow was found all the way down at the foot of the bed, and more importantly, it's underneath the mattress. The mattress had been pushed and was overhanging the box spring. This pillow appears to have been neatly placed on the floor at the foot of the bed before the mattress got moved in the struggle. Given the mechanics of the struggle and the layout of all the items in the room, I don't believe this pillow landed there during the struggle. I think that it was intentionally placed there. Now this is at the foot of the bed, towards the side of the bed where Elnora got undressed, right near that corner. Now if we go back and look at State's Exhibit 23, we see a large semen stain on the comforter. The semen stain is visible in several of the crime scene photos of the bedroom. Now before I go any further, the first thing you'll note is that the semen stain is brown in color. This has thrown me off for a long time. It doesn't look like a semen stain to me. But we know it is a semen stain based on Lorna Beasley's testimony, who did all of the forensic testing on the evidence from the crime scene. It is absolutely a semen stain. This led me to research why semen would be brown in color. My research led me to a website called medhelp.org. And apparently, brown-colored semen is not all that uncommon. This is a forum where people ask questions and doctors answer. What I found in my research is that there are several reasons why semen could be brown in color. It could be due to lack of sex or ejaculation. It could be due to arousal and stimulation without ejaculation. It could be due to having too much sex. It could be due to an infection where there would be bleeding in the vas deferens. It's also a common indicator of excessive drug use, pain medication use, or even allergy medication. It also could be indicative of an STD. In the forum that I was reading, people ranging from the ages of 18 to 72 years old were having this exact same issue. But what I want to note, where you can see clearly in Exhibit 23, along with several of the other crime scene photos, is the location of the semen stain. If we pull the comforter back onto the bed, the semen stain would be located in the lower half of the bed, near the left side if you're at the foot of the bed looking towards the head. This is the same corner of the bed where Elnora had removed her clothes and where the pillow was found on the ground. The other thing that you'll notice is that the semen stain is a large stain. It looks to be two inches or greater in diameter. 
This also helps to paint a picture for us, probably a picture that none of us want to think about, and I know I'm stating the obvious here, but when a man ejaculates, it does not come out in a puddle. We would expect to see spurts throughout the mattress, but that's not what we find. We have one small puddle of semen, about two inches in diameter, in one location. So what we know is that semen didn't get there due to ejaculation. So it leaves us two or three possibilities of how it got there. One possibility is drainage from the vagina, meaning Elnora could have sat there after sex and there was some drainage. But remember, in the rape kit, there was no semen found inside of Elnora's vagina. So I think we can rule drainage out. If there had been a very recent, like within minutes, sexual encounter where there was still drainage happening, there would have been lots of semen found in her vagina, but there was none. Another possibility is that a condom was discarded there and it leaked out. That's a possibility that we could still keep on the table, although there was no condom found anywhere on the crime scene. In the third possibility, and again, I apologize for being so crude, but there's really no other option. The third possibility is that the semen was deposited there because it was spit out. And personally, I think that this is the most likely scenario. The rape kit also didn't indicate any semen found in Elnora's mouth. However, I think that the crime scene can explain to us why that is. After looking at all of the evidence, I believe the pillow was placed at the end of the bed for Elnora to kneel on. I believe that she performed oral sex, spit out the semen, and she would have been knelt down just feet away from the bathroom, where she could have went and used mouthwash or brushed her teeth or rinsed her mouth out. If I'm right, and this was oral sex that occurred, it was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was something that was methodically planned out. The man is sitting on the edge of the bed. Elnor removes her clothes, gets a pillow, and moves it down to give her something to protect her knees against the floor. And given that state of mind and psychology, that Elnora planned to do this in a way that made her more comfortable, I don't think it is at all out of the question for her to have got up, turned around, walked the three feet into the bathroom, and rinsed her mouth out. And I believe that that's exactly what happened. It was after that, and I believe immediately after that, that the struggle ensued. And I say this because Elnora was still completely nude. She hadn't had time to put her robe back on or get redressed. I think that there had been oral sex. She went into the bathroom to rinse her mouth out. And when she came out of the bathroom, the fight began. Now, this could also help explain why the phone is in the room. Elnora turning around and going into the bathroom to rinse her mouth out would have given the killer time to leave the room, go into the other side of the house, and pull the phone off the wall. Now, why this would have happened, I have no idea. It seems like an odd thing for a man to do right after receiving oral sex. But we don't know what was going on. We don't know what was being said. We don't know if someone tried to call. That could have been the moment when Elnora got the call from Kubia. Maybe she answered the phone in the bedroom, told Kubia that it was Edward sitting there, and the killer took that opportunity to rip the other phone off the wall after she hung up. And if you go back and look at State's Exhibit 23, you'll see the phone in the picture. After taking a closer look at the phone, I think that that phone obviously, and I guess we already knew this, but it obviously shows clear premeditation. But it also tells us something else. I don't believe Elnora was in the room facing the killer when the phone was brought in. When you look at the phone in State's Exhibit 23, you notice that the phone has a very long cord. But look at the placement of the cord. The phone is set on the ground with the receiver still on the hook. 
That indicates to us that it was set on the ground, not thrown on the ground. But the cord paints a picture for us too. It looks like this cord, when it's not stretched out, is between 10 and 12 feet long. Elnora did not have a cordless phone in the house, so this would be the phone that she would sit at her dining room table and talk to, so it needed a long cord. But what you'll notice is that the cord is doubled up. The cord goes down to about 3 feet and then back up. And I know this is hard for me to describe in audio, so I'd urge you to look at the crime scene photo, but I'll try to explain this. The person that took that phone off the wall would have started walking, and the cord is so long it was dragging on the ground. They grabbed the bottom of the cord, where the loop would have been, where it goes down and then back up to the receiver. They grabbed that loop and pulled it up and were holding it up against the phone. So because we see that U-shape in the cord, where the end of the cord is up by the receiver, that tells us that the person that had the phone was not dragging the cord on the ground. If they had, you would see the cord tailed straight out back through that door. They were carrying the phone with the bottom of the cord up by the phone and then set it neatly on the ground. I don't think that they would have done this if Elnora was watching them. That certainly would have created some questions or an argument or even a struggle as to why the person ripped her phone off the wall. I think that the phone was taken off the wall and carried into that room while Elnora was in the bathroom rinsing her mouth out. Then Elnora comes out of the bathroom, moves back towards the door, back towards the area where her robe, her bra, and her underwear were located, and she's attacked. Remember, she had bruises and abrasions all over her face and body. She had been choked. The struggle hit the bed and knocked the bed away and pulled the comforter down. And then she got away, got to the front door, ripped the curtain off. The killer finally got a hold of her and slit her throat in the living room. And I believe that this further supports the idea that not only was the person who had had the sexual encounter with Elnora either the one who killed her or was standing right there when she was killed, but also that they were fully clothed when this happened. There's a couple of things that indicate this. Number one, the knife. If someone was stripped down naked having sex with someone, where would they get the knife from? It could possibly have been a knife that was taken from the kitchen, but the wound is jagged. The forensic analysis reports say that it was either a serrated blade or a dull knife with several chopping motions. I think that most likely we're looking for a pocket knife. And further evidence to support this comes in States Exhibit 40. This is a close-up photo of the second pillow that was located up near the head of the bed where the comforter and sheets had been pulled off. What you see there is a boot print made in feces. Now, given the material, I can't definitively say that this is a work boot, but to me, that's what it looks like. It does not look like the print of a tennis shoe. I believe the person that was strangling Elnora and stepped on this pillow during the struggle was wearing work boots. So again, we're talking about a murder that occurred minutes after the sexual encounter. Elnora still fully nude, and the killer still wearing their boots. And I believe this further supports the theory that the sexual encounter was oral sex. I believe Elnora was nude. The man that she was with simply unbuttoned and pulled down his pants. She set a pillow down and performed oral sex, spit out the semen. She went into the bathroom to rinse her mouth out. The killer pulled his pants back up, went into the kitchen, removed the phone from the wall, and came back in fully dressed, and that's when the struggle started. And he eventually reached into his pocket, pulled out his pocket knife, and slit her throat. And as I look even deeper at the crime scene, I noticed something this week that I hadn't noticed before. The pillow that was under Elnora's body. This pillow has been a mystery to me ever since we began talking about this case. First of all, I don't know where the pillow came from. It doesn't match the bedding in the bedroom, but it is a bed pillow. The sheets and pillowcases in the bedroom were green. 
and this pillow was pinkish or purple. I think that the most likely location where this pillow came from was the couch. You'll notice in some of the crime scene photos that there's bedding folded up on the edge of the couch. And we know that Elnora's family had been visiting her earlier that week. They left on Sunday. I think that she had the couch set up with that pillow for someone to sleep on. But the question still remains, how did the pillow end up underneath Elnora? My assumption had been that during the struggle somehow she got her hands on it, and she was clutching it when her throat was slit. But when I looked closer, I noticed something. There's no blood on this pillow. And the pillow is located underneath Elnora's head and chest, right underneath the massive gash to her throat. This didn't make any sense to me. I thought maybe she had completely bled out before she fell, and that's why there was no blood on the pillow. But the carpet all around the pillow is soaked with blood. In order to piece this together, I had to do something that was incredibly disturbing, and I don't recommend any of you do it. But I went online and I looked for videos of people who had had their throat slit. We've all seen this happen in the movies, but that's Hollywood, and it's not how it really happens. Unfortunately, and sadly, there are videos online of terrorists slitting the throats of people. And what I wanted to see was how long someone's throat would continue to bleed after it had been slit. And what I found is that this goes on for several seconds, if not minutes. In one video I found, a man's throat was slit in almost the exact same manner as Elnora's. The man is dead within seconds, but the blood is pouring out of his throat for at least 40 seconds after that. And the other thing I noticed is that his body wasn't still. Even though he was technically dead, his body was still convulsing and twitching. What this tells me is that when Elnora hit the ground, she would have been pouring blood out of her throat and twitching around, and there's no way if she was holding that pillow, it wouldn't be completely drenched in blood. What that means is that pillow was placed underneath her after the fact. After she was already dead, and after she was done bleeding. I had a brief phone discussion with Jim Clementi about this on Wednesday morning. Jim doesn't know all the elements of the crime and hasn't examined all the crime scene details. But I just asked him what that would indicate if someone put a pillow underneath someone's body after they were already dead. And he said that this is what we call undoing. It's a sign of remorse and it's an indication of someone with a personal relationship to the victim. The psychology behind it is that the person committed the murder in an act of rage and then afterwards they felt remorse. And they do things that don't make sense to someone who's not in that situation. They'll cover up the body, or they'll do things like put a pillow underneath them. Now you and I know in our state of mind that that doesn't help the situation. It doesn't make them any less dead. But that's what's happening in the mindset of the killer. So this is further support that the person that killed Elnora is a person that had an intimate relationship with her. And when Jim mentioned that to me about the undoing, my memory immediately jumped back to the things Johnny Pryor had said. She told me this in person, and she said it during her trial testimony, that when she came into the trailer, she looked and saw Elnora's body, and there was a towel covering up her throat. This would be another indicator of undoing. The problem is that there is no towel in any of the crime scene photos. So this has never made sense to me. I also asked Ed, who also saw Elnora's body, because he and his brother had stepped into the trailer right before the police got there in the same position that Johnny was, which was just one step into the door, a look to the left, and could see her body next to the couch. Now this was about 8.30 at night, and the lights were off, and all the blinds were pulled. 
but Ed said that it was still light enough that you could pretty much make out what you were seeing, especially with the door open. But Ed said that he didn't remember seeing a towel. So as I went back through all the trial testimony, I found that the very first person to see Elnora's body up close was a man named Charles Aldrich. Charles was a first responder with the Volunteer Fire Company in Jackson Heights, and he was the first one on the scene. He testified that he got there, ran inside, looked at the body, determined right away that she was dead and there was nothing they could do, and he exited the trailer. After spending 16 years in the fire service myself, I've experienced thousands of incidents over the years. But there are certain incidents that you come across that you just never forget. They stick in your mind and your memory. So I did some checking and I was able to track down Charles Aldrich. In Thursday night, I finally got him on the phone. This is what Charles Aldrich had to say about old Nora's body. Do you know the incident that I was that I was referring to when I called you? Well, there's only a couple of them that I've worked, so I think so. Yeah, I would I, I would imagine it was from my experience as, as a fireman. There's certain ones that you just you don't forget. If it's one I remember, the aunt called said I think my niece is dead or cousin or somebody I forget, but. Yeah. And I showed up, and she's laying there with her throat cut ear to ear? Yeah, yep, that's the one. Okay. I was kind of comparing crime scene photos and some of the police reports. And do you remember like what the body I was positioned or what she was wearing? Or does any of that ring a bell? Do you recall any of that? She was wearing nothing. Okay. And, and the big thing, I was remembering, because you were, you were the one that went in first, and you kind of checked and determined she was dead. And left. Right. And that was that, that was all you did in there. Do you remember if there was if there was a, could you see the wound when you got there? Did you was there anything on top of her? Did you have to move anything? Nope, nothing there. The blood was all dried and everything else. I touched the body; it was cold to the touch. Yep. All right, Charles. Well, hey, man, leg I, I touched, but yeah, you know, I don't remember yep. exactly, but I know I touched her. If she was cold to the touch, the blood was all dried on the fur. Knacking on the floor, so. So as you can hear, even 23 years later, Charles specifically remembers this incident. And he said that there was not a towel over Elnora's throat. He said that he could see that all the blood around her was dry. He could see the wound on her neck. He touched her leg. She was cold to the touch, and he backed out. Our conversation went on longer than just the clip you just heard, and I asked him a few times if he was positive, if he was sure. And he said he was absolutely positive that he did not take a towel off. He said he noticed right away the huge gash in her throat before he ever touched her. Now, the order of events that occurred when Elnora's body was found were this. Johnny walked to the trailer with Mrs. Dews. She unlocked the door, opened the door, stepped in, saw Elnora's body, walked back out, shut the door, called 911. Mr. Aldridge arrived on the scene. He went inside, determined that she was dead, and came back out. At that point, Ed and his brother Kelvin noticed the first responder vehicle on the scene. They went down to see what was going on, and he and his brother went to the front door, opened the door, looked in, and as they were looking in, Deputy Tomlin showed up from the sheriff's department and told them to get out of the trailer and away from the house, and they left. So no one had been in the trailer between the time when Johnny had walked in and when Mr. Aldrich walked in. So in my opinion, after weighing all the evidence, I believe that there was not a towel placed over the wound on Elnora. I think that given the lighting conditions and the stress level, that Johnny thought she saw something that wasn't there. So after weighing all this out, I think that we have a clear hypothesis of exactly how this crime went down. Remember, the front porch light was left on. There was no sign of forced entry. A male had used the bathroom in the back of the house. The seat was up. 
so I believe that someone came over to visit Elnora that she was expecting. Late at night. I believe they sat down at the dining room table, they chatted for a little while, the man then used the bathroom, they then moved into the bedroom, the man remained clothed other than pulling his pants down. He sat on the bed while Elnora removed her underwear, then her robe, then her bra. She put a pillow at the foot of the bed, performed oral sex, spit the semen out which landed on the mattress. She then got up and went into the bathroom to rinse her mouth out, while the man went into the kitchen and removed the phone from the jack on the wall. He came back in. While she was still nude, the struggle ensued. Elnora escaped from the bedroom, tried to get out the front door. He caught her a few feet later and slit her throat. At some point after she was dead, the man then grabbed a pillow, probably from off the couch, and tucked it underneath her already dead body. Now, why is all of this important? Why is it important that we're able to break down the exact timeline and order of events that occurred? The reason this is important is because of that semen stain on the mattress. That semen stain was sent to the lab and it was tested. It wasn't tested for DNA, but it was tested for blood type. Edward Eights was ruled out as a possible donor of that semen stain. It was a different blood type than his. And it's important that we understand how the semen stain got there and when. You see, the state's argument at trial was that that semen stain could have been left there at any time. David Dobbs said specifically that could be days old, weeks old, or even years old. And the semen could still be present on the comforter even after multiple launderings. This is how he convinced the jury that that semen stain did not matter, that it didn't belong to Edward Eights. But I'm here to tell you that it does matter. I believe that all the evidence on that crime scene indicates that Elnor was killed seconds after that semen stain was put on that bed. She was still nude. The sexual encounter occurred just minutes before she was murdered. She hadn't even had time to get redressed. This didn't happen hours later after she had went to bed. The bed was still made other than the one pillow that was pulled off and put on the floor at the foot of the bed right before the struggle occurred. And I believe that we can prove that that semen stain was not an old stain. That it was in fact very fresh. There are a couple of things that tell us this. Number one, the layout of the crime scene that I just explained to you. The location of the stain, relevant to Elnora's clothing and the pillow with the foot of the bed. We have Johnny Pryor's testimony that Elnora was extremely neat. Her exact words at trial was that she was neat as a pin. This is a big, ugly, brown stain right on the top of that white comforter. I specifically asked Johnny when I was in Tyler last month if she thinks that Elnora would leave a stain like that on the bed without cleaning it or replacing the comforter. And she said there is no chance that would happen. Elnora's the type of person that got up and made her bed every morning before she went to work. She kept her house in pristine order. And then we have the stain itself. State's Exhibit 34 was the one used at trial to show the jury a close-up view of the semen stain. When you look at State's Exhibit 34, you can see that this is not a stain, that this is a puddle. You can see where the puddle of semen had started to soak into the comforter around the edges, but there was still a significant amount of semen in the middle that hadn't soaked in yet. But this week, today actually, as I was preparing to record this episode, I caught something that I had never noticed before. 
In regards to the semen stain, I have always focused on this Exhibit 34, the close-up photo of the semen. But I want to direct your attention to State's Exhibit 20. State's Exhibit 20 is a photo of the bedroom taken from the doorway. I've always known that you could see the semen stain in that photo, but I never paid it much attention. But what I noticed today is that in State's Exhibit 20, there is one tiny little detail that tells us that that is a fresh semen stain. And that tiny detail is a reflection. The camera that was used to take that photo obviously had a flash on it. And in the bottom right-hand side of the semen stain, we see a white flash. What this tells us is that the semen was still wet when that photo was taken. It was wet enough and there was enough material there to cause a reflection of the flash. This was not an old semen stain. This was a fresh, new puddle of semen, and it is semen that we know unquestionably does not belong to Edward Eights. We know that Edward Eights did not murder Elnora Griffin. And we also know that the person who left that semen on that comforter did. Thank you to Johnny Rhodes of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget that if you want to support Johnny Rhodes or you just like the music for the show, look up Truth and Justice, the music soundtrack on iTunes, or go to truthandjusticemusic.com where you can purchase on any other platform. All proceeds go to Johnny Rose. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Our editor, Daniel Schaefer, was off on vacation this week, but I still want to make sure to thank Daniel for all the hard work and long hours he's put into editing all the podcasts. I want to thank today's sponsors, Four Athletics, Talkspace, and Stamps.com. Don't forget that through August 7th, you can still get 15% off by going to fourathletics.com and using my promo code TRUTH. And I want to thank all of you for all of your work and dedication to bringing real truth and justice to our American justice system. Thank you for staying engaged, all your offers for help, as well as your monetary donations. And again, if you want to pledge an ongoing donation to the show, you can pledge as little as $1 by going to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send your new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.